0: I was reminded a couple different ways this week of just the distinctiveness of the church and what God produces in the church when He draws people to Himself and unites them together in Christ. One of the funny ways God reminded me of that this week was uh, I've been coaching middle school basketball and uh, Rusty and Cindy's grandson plays on the team and Brennan was there with some of his teammates and asked their grandson Uh, hey, is Rusty and Cindy coming to the game tonight? And uh, his teammate says, who in the world is that? And Banks says, that's my grandma and my grandpa. And Brennan's teammate looks at him and says, why in the world would you be excited to see his grandma and his grandpa? And Brennan said, they go to our church. So I'm just grateful for what the Lord does. And it just reminded me that some of the things that we view as just normal Part of church life is actually a way where a testimony of witness to the world. So let's go, Lord, in prayer. Oh, Lord, we just sang that when we stand in glory, we will behold you face to face. And Lord, we pray that those words would not just be empty words that we sing, but that they would be true for us, that we indeed are clinging to Christ as our only hope to be in glory to be in your presence, to be forgiven of all of our sins. Lord, may you use the old, old story of the gospel this morning to refresh our hearts in Christ, that we might adore him, that we might live unto your glory more consistently, because we are thankful for what you've done in Christ and applied to us through the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I read these lines this week from a poem called Gratitude. It says, what can I, my Savior, do to repay the debt I owe? Earthly years are all too few, earthly treasures all too low. And then he kind of goes through the rest of his poem. He's kind of recounting all the things that he could possibly do to repay his Savior. And then he comes to the end, he says, vain to pay the debt I owe. All the service I can do, earthly good is far too low, earthly years are far too few. I wonder if you feel that this morning. There's not enough goods on earth and not enough time to repay God for what He's done in Christ. Do you feel that that every treasure on earth is too low a repayment based on what He deserves from us? Do you feel that you could never be good enough in 10, 20, 30, 40, 60 years, whatever you have left on this earth? I hope I hope you feel that. I hope you feel that because once you feel and understand that you are in a position to really appreciate what happens in our text. I asked Rusty to read Romans chapter 3, but we're actually going to be in Luke chapter 23. And I'm going to read the text, and we'll pick up there in verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I don't know, I was just struck as I read that poem this week that here's the the criminal on the cross who had no time left and could not give Jesus anything. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Because as you read the poem, how can I repay my Savior? I don't have enough time. I, I, I don't have enough money. I don't have enough treasures. And then he kind of recalls everything he could possibly do and he ends by saying, that even that would not be enough. It, it sounds like it's a prayer of, of despair. But then... I kind of started thinking, well, the title of the poem is Gratitude. It's gratitude. So it's not a poem about despair. It's a poem that he's rejoicing that I could never repay this debt, and the good news is I don't have to. I don't have to because Christ has paid it. This is the only debt you'll ever incur in your entire life that you should rejoice that you cannot repay. You can be happy about that. The fact that we cannot repay this debt, it magnifies the generosity and the kindness of God in Christ. All right, so I mentioned last week in chapter 23, verses 26 through 49 should really be kind of one section, but I thought it would be best to take it as two sermons to get through this one section. So this morning is part two of this one section, and if I'm being honest, There's now part three coming next week. I read a pastor this morning. He said, my my sermon manuscript was too long, so I lowered the font and I shrunk the margins. Well, I didn't want to do that. I just thought, we'll finish the text next week. Last week, we saw that Jesus uh, gave a a warning of impending judgment for unrepentant Israel and that that sort of looks forward to and pictures a greater judgment, a worldwide judgment as Christ judges the world. And we saw in, in uh, the trial and we saw in the crucifixion the mockery of everyone involved. As they made fun of Jesus for not coming down off that cross and saving himself, we saw that he was dying in order that he might save many. So as we kind of dive back into this larger section here, we see one one of the two criminals join in mocking Jesus. But we've seen enough mockery, right? We've seen almost everybody on scene making fun of Jesus. So the, the really amazing thing is not that one of them is mocking, but that the second criminal comes to his defense. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. The first point is, is this. We are saved by simple faith in Christ. We are saved by simple faith in Christ. We saw up there in verse 32 that there were two criminals crucified with Jesus, one on his left and one on his right. And then the story kind of faded away from these guys, and we sort of, we sort of walk through Jesus' prayer for those who are persecuting him. We, we walk through what it means for him to be crucified. Well, now the, the, the passage kind of circles back to these two criminals. And it says, one of them railed at Jesus. Now, that's actually the same Greek word that was translated blasphemed earlier, I think, at the end of chapter 22. So this is, this is another taunt. When he asked there... In verse 39, are you not the Christ? He's not expressing some kind of uh, minuscule faith, right? Some, maybe, maybe it could sound like a weak faith. Are you not the Savior? It's not that. He's, he's blaspheming. He's railing against him. He's making fun of Jesus. It's a sarcastic slander. And we see in one man uh, his unrepentance and his unbelief in Christ. He joins the rest of the scoffers. And it's really a sad, a sad story because you have a dying man who just takes one last chance to scoff at Christ. On his way out of the world, he's going to scoff at Jesus. And, and the content of his scoffing is, are, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and then you know, save us. Save us as well. The, the, the reason then for his, his his taunting, the reason for his slander, the reason for his ridicule, is this guy has in his mind an idea of what a savior would do and what a messiah would be. If, he, if, he, if this man is powerful, he would indeed save himself. That's what's funny in his mind. What's funny is this guy claims to be the savior, yet he's staying on the cross. Clearly, Jesus could not be the Messiah because if he was if he was he would save himself. But remember what Jesus said to the disciples. Remember right after the Lord's supper and they they began arguing about who is the greatest among them. And this is what Jesus said, the king of the gentiles, the kings of the gentiles exercise lordship over them, but not so with you rather let the greatest among you become one who serves so the criminal mocks jesus because he believes that a truly great savior would be like all those great gentile rulers and kings who use their power and twist it to serve themselves who domineer over the people who exert their authority for their own gain and for their own good. But he's blind to the reality, to the biblical truth of what true greatness is. I wonder if you see the greatness of Christ this morning. That the infinitely righteous and holy one is choosing not to save himself. He's choosing to go to that cross. No one takes his life From him, he lays it down of his own accord. He has the power to domineer and serve himself, and he chooses to lay it down, and he's therefore truly great, truly great, as he suffers in the place of those who are at enmity with him, suffering for his enemies. Romans 5 says it this way, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that's true greatness. That's what Christ has come to accomplish. And while this, this one is railing against Christ, God is doing a, a miraculous work in the heart of the other guy. I'm going to try not to say dude this week. Somebody pointed out to me that I said, dude, in the sermon, and I said, yeah, I think I even said hoodie, too, and she said, that wasn't a compliment, (laughs) but it was all a good fun, so you can laugh at that. All right, the guy, the criminal, you know, I think it's significant, that there's two, right? There's one that rejects, and there's one that believes, because... I think if we just had the one that believes, we might be tempted to say, "Well, well, of course he's just kind of—he's about to die. There, he's just kind of grasping at whatever hope he might have." But then you look at the—it didn't work for him. He's in the exact same circumstance, exact same condemnation, exact same charges, and he re- responds completely different to Jesus—one who reacts in unbelief, one who acts in belief. And look what he does there. He actually rebukes the scoffer there in verse 40. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Right off the bat, you see that we'll call call the first guy the repentant criminal. Really, we don't really know his crime. The repentant guy, right off the bat, he understands something about Jesus that we haven't heard from others since, right, since Jesus was arrested. It's been mockery and blasphemy and slander and attack. This guy understands something about Jesus that we haven't heard since his arrest and his trial and his crucifixion. He recognizes that to ridicule Jesus is to have no fear of God. To ridicule Jesus is to have no concern for what God thinks. Right? The, the question is, interesting, don't you fear God? We've talked a lot about the fear of the Lord. We've spent a lot of time in Proverbs over uh, the spring and summer, but just a reminder, the fear of the Lord is to understand the majesty and glory of God and to live in light of it. It's to know the majesty and glory of God and to live in light of it. The person who fears God loves what God loves and hates what God hates, to echo what J.O. prays when he comes back and preaches for us. And so the the unrepentant one does not fear God. He's railing against God's chosen one, the Christ, the Savior, the Son of God. And so the repentant criminal rebukes the other there. Do you not have any fear? He also confesses that he's under a just sentence. I think he confesses the justice of God in his sentence even. The repentant criminal points out they're receiving the just penalty and the due reward for their deeds. He he freely admits that they are indeed guilty. They're receiving a worthy sentence, he says. And so part of his rebuke is, is I think, essentially this. Who are you to make fun of him when you're receiving the just reward for your life and for your sin and he's innocent? Do you not fear God? Do you have no concern that you're under the same condemnation? And and for us, it's a just and it's a worthy penalty. But Jesus doesn't deserve this, and he confesses that. He says that in verse uh, 41. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. This is the sixth time the innocence of Jesus has been mentioned in chapter 23 and now it's on the lips of this criminal who's receiving the just reward the due penalty for his actions and so after after rebuking the scoffer he now turns and addresses jesus and we see his request there jesus remember me when you come into your kingdom we said the point is we're saved by a simple faith, and I love the expression of the simple faith of this criminal. He knows that Jesus can help him. He knows that Jesus can help him. His request for Jesus to remember him that's what it's a request for help, the sort of help that, that God gives his people throughout the Old Testament when God remembers his people and he acts on their behalf. So he's speaking to Jesus as if, would you, be, would you be like God the Father and demonstrate your covenant faithfulness and remember me? And he believes that Jesus cares. Part of his faith is just believing that Jesus actually cares about his predicament. He not only believes that Jesus is one who can help, but he, he trusts that Jesus is one who is willing to help, despite what the mockers have said. He believes that, believes and understands that Jesus can and does save. So he calls on him to bring me into your kingdom. And really, I mean, a lot of times we, we talk about like how little the thief knew, and, and I think there's there's room for that, and that's that's true. But I, I think there's ways in this text that it's a simple faith, but it's a profound faith, and I think it points to the work of the Holy Spirit in this man's heart, like when Peter confesses Christ and Jesus' flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. I think we can look at the criminal and say, flesh and blood did not reveal this to him. And here's why I say this. Here are two men, well, there's three, but let's focus on the the two we've been talking about. Two two men struggling for each breath. Death is encroaching quickly. And one guy is saying, hey, uh, uh, essentially, I know we're about to die here, but when you get into your kingdom, remember me. Right, one commentator said it this way, it defies explanation. Here is one who believes in a kingdom he cannot see, and a king wearing a crown of thorns, whose throne is a cross, whose robe nakedness, whose glory a body shredded by Roman whips, whose court was caustic blasphemers, and whose enemies had apparently conquered him. And yet he looks at Jesus and says, when you get into your kingdom, don't forget about me. Remember me, such faith must be the miracle of God. The Spirit of God shining light in this man's heart. You see, there's a, two ways that Jesus has been treated in this passage. We've seen a lot of people treat him as one who's deserving to be mocked. But this man sees Jesus as a Savior and a King. Remember me when you get into your kingdom. While most On seeing that, they see Jesus as nothing more than an embarrassing failure who tried to take up a role that was not for him. They see him as a person who will be killed and forgotten and just pushed into history the way we just sang will happen about us, right? We're going to die and we're going to kind of be forgotten about history the way you forget your dreams when you wake up. That's the way they were thinking about Jesus. But there's a couple people in our text. We see one this morning. We'll see another one next week who recognize Jesus as King and Savior. And you see it in the way he talks to Jesus there. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. That he actually anticipates that there's something beyond their current predicament. That Jesus will have and exercise great power and authority as King. He anticipates that there is hope for him beyond what he's enduring on that cross, and he looks to eternity. He has some sense that this is not the end for Jesus. And if it's not the end for Jesus, then there's hope that it's not the end for him as well. That Jesus, the Savior King, can change his eternal destiny. And Jesus actually gives him hope there. He says, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And I think... I think Jesus' answer goes even beyond what the criminal expects. I think he kind of expects, I'll go into the dirt and some, somewhere way down the line, maybe my body will be resurrected and I'll get to enjoy this kingdom that, that I'm perceiving here. I think Jesus' answer goes well beyond what he's anticipating. He says, today, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus doesn't speak of some unspecified moment in the future, but of the present immediate benefit of being found in Christ. This is is what happens when Christ's righteousness is applied to you by faith. That death becomes a transition to uh, eternal glory, even as we might await the resurrection of our bodies. This is the power of Christ's righteousness applied to a criminal who rightly deserves crucifixion today with Christ in paradise. Paradise there is uh, just what we we would probably in our common vernacular just call heaven. That's where the where the righteous are are gathered in the presence of God. You know we uh, again we await the resurrection of the body, the glorification of the body. But to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. So this paradise is to be in God's presence. I think it's the same as where Lazarus went oh, when he's at Abraham's side and the rich man goes to a place of torment. I think that's, that's just paradise. Some people call it Abraham's bosom. We, we kind of took that to mean I think he's just with Abraham. He's at Abraham's side. So in a matter of minutes or hours... This man who has been justly condemned to death and is being put to death by the Romans would be in the eternal joy of the presence of God. And he would be with Christ. Now we should think about for a little bit what this means. Uh, Nate and I were talking not too long ago about the thief on the cross. And and Nate said something that I really appreciate. He said, if your gospel is you may not even remember this if your gospel cannot save a dying man with a knife in his back then you don't have the same gospel that saved the thief on the cross right if your gospel cannot save a dying man who has minutes then you don't have the same gospel as the thief on the cross and i think that's exactly right Jesus' interaction with this guilty criminal helps us dispel, I think, some of the more popular misnomers and misunderstandings that have infiltrated people's thoughts and thinking. uh, You know, particularly that a person's good deeds might earn them entrance into paradise, entrance into God's presence, entrance into heaven right we were talking about this in our small group we actually cuz rusty was sick a couple weeks ago we actually had a kind of a bigger combined small group but this, this came up that many think that you know our good deeds will sort of be weighed against our bad deeds and that will be what determines the person's eternal future but that sort of that's not gospel Right? And that sort of thinking leaves this criminal with no hope. He didn't have time to make up for his sins. I bet he even had very few days as he looked back over the course of his life where he stopped and said, Well, I did my good deed for today. The truth is, there's no scales in heaven. Right? And, there, and that's because there is no need of them. You and I, our deeds have been weighed and they've been found wanting. But if you will turn to Christ, like this criminal, if you will confess your sins, if you will admit as He does and call upon Christ, He will save you. And it's those who have actually turned to Christ. If you've turned to Christ, you're in Him, you've been credited with the righteousness of Jesus. It's, we, we rejoice in the fact that there's no scales up there. Because if there were, we would all be condemned for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who seeks after God. No one understands. All have turned aside and gone after their own way. I think this idea as well helps those who are in Christ, those who are trusting in the death and resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. I think it helps us put our uh, uh, efforts towards good deeds in proper perspective. Our works are not so that we can impress God or be be credited with any more righteousness. We have the perfect righteousness of Christ applied to our account. Our good deeds are meant to be the overflow of the appreciation of the glory of God seen in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're so thankful that He has come as our substitute. And we see that there's no other Savior. There's no other gospel. There's no other God like this. There's no man that could have come up with the story. And we see the glory of the Lord. And by that, we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. It's the love of Christ that compels us. It's the love of Christ that compels us. It's in light of the cross that we want to obey Him in the way we speak, in the way we work when no one's watching and the way we conduct ourselves, and how we steward the things that God has given us. So our good works are not unimportant. right? The gospel is not that, well, live however you want because you've been credited with the righteousness of Jesus. Our good works are not unimportant, but they are not the basis for our right relationship, the enmity being destroyed between us and God. So others then have kind of looked at the thief on the cross and said, yeah, he, the scales don't work for him. right? That, that, that leaves him without hope. But you know what? There's, there's a place that he can go where, where the rest of his sin can kind of be cleansed out of him. It's a place called purgatory. In that place, the remaining sin that you have left can be cleansed over time till you're worthy to be in the presence of God now if if purgatory were necessary for anyone it'd be this guy in our passage right if it were needed for anybody it'd be this guy he just got he just got saved he's about to die and he was justly being put to death for being a criminal yet Jesus says today you will be with me in paradise We see it's a simple faith in Christ that saves, and it saves completely, and it saves completely apart from works. And it's based entirely on the death and resurrection and the perfect life of Jesus Christ. Rusty read it this morning. We rejoiced in it together. We are justified by faith apart from works. Therefore, Paul goes on, and we didn't read it this morning, but where can we boast? Well, we can't boast in anything. Instead, all the glory goes to God alone because He alone saves. You know, there's some really good things, some some things that we are passionate about in this church, things that if that criminal would have come down off the cross, he should have pursued. Things like baptism, things like church membership, right? Those are good things and important things and we preach on those things, but those things don't save. And we see it here in the criminal. He had no opportunity. Saved completely apart from works. No opportunity to tithe to a church. No opportunity to really do much of anything for Christ that could be credited to his account. I think this story is a a gift to us because it helps us see the glory of the free salvation that we have in Christ. Apart from any of our own deeds, completely righteous. When a person comes to Christ, they become the immediate beneficiary of every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. There's no tears. There's no second blessing that you need to be working toward. You have everything you need in Christ Jesus the moment you believe. Because it's the gift of His grace. And it's because Jesus has earned it for us. And when you're united to Him, you receive the sort of blessings that should come only to Him. His righteousness given to you. And His righteousness goes so far beyond our sin. So far beyond what... what, He is so righteous that His righteousness swallows up our sin. It supersedes it. And that's not to minimize our sin. It's to maximize the righteousness of Christ and the perfect work that He accomplished for us. Though our sin is great, His life and His record prevails for us. His righteousness is given to you. His sonship, you are adopted into His family. The moment you come to Christ, you don't earn that. You don't have to live, you don't have to meet some expectation outside of faith in order to now you're welcome into the family you were at arm's length Christ's death and resurrection Romans chapter 6 yours in Christ he's such a complete savior he's sufficient to save so sufficient that he can look at a guy that should be put to death and say today you'll be with me in paradise You know, if anyone understood the lines we read this morning, right? Earthly years are all too few. Earthly treasures all too low. If anyone understood, it would be him. Yet he called on Christ and asked him to remember him when he entered into his kingdom. So then our second point is much briefer than that, but I want to ask the question, on what basis can Jesus offer that? And what basis can Jesus offer that? And, and so point number two is this. The object of our faith is Christ and Him crucified. We're saved by simple faith, but what matters is, is the object of our faith. I remember doing a VBS I, one year, probably back in Missouri. I don't know. Uh, could have been in, in Colorado one time. But we, we, you know we, this little girl, she was probably like four, and she's saying, I, I want to be saved. And her name was Faith. And I said, okay, Faith, what do you think it means to be saved? And she said, you need me in your heart. Her name is Faith. You need faith in your heart. All right. What matters is not just having faith, right? You know, I didn't say, hey, well, repeat after me and we'll tell the whole church you got saved, right? Well, she didn't have the right object of her faith. And the world treats faith kind of like that, right? You just need faith. You just, just kind of need to believe that everything's going to turn out okay. Just, just have faith through the divorce or, or faith through the cancer or faith through this. They, they use it sort of so flippantly, like faith in what? Faith in what? Told you before about that um, unbroken movie, right? Angelina Jolie was part of like producing that movie. And and the guy that's actually the the main person portrayed in that movie, he actually became a Christian. He like prayed out on this boat, Lord, if you save me, I'll give you my life. And then he he was a prisoner of war and was beaten. And he he sort of turned himself over to revenge and alcohol. And then he went to this. Billy Graham sermon and heard the gospel for the first time, and he realized to give your life to Christ, or to give your life to God, to serve God with your life, you, you have to come to Christ by faith. And, um, and then he went and actually found his persecutor. Instead of trying to kill him, he forgave him. All right. Uh, so, but in the midst of this, they were doing this little documentary on how it all came to be, and they're interviewing Angelina Jolie, and she says, man, I want, I want faith like that. But then she said, I need faith that everything's going to turn out all right. I thought, oh my goodness, his faith is in Christ. Not that everything's going to turn out all right. So as we study this passage, I want us to keep in mind the object of our faith is what, what matters. The question that comes to my mind as I think about the crucifixion of Christ is could Jesus have died any other way? Could he have died any kind of way? Was the manner of death significant? Now, I'm not omniscient and neither are you, so I'm sure there are ways that God could have brought about His plan uh, for His own glory, and it would have accomplished our salvation. But I think as we consider the crucifixion in light of the storyline of Scripture, we see that what at first might seem to be an indiscriminate detail becomes a wonderful picture of our redemption. Here's what I mean. Jesus was hung on a cross, or as the apostles call it in the book of Acts, he was hung on a tree. This idea, this idea you found in verse 39, one of the criminals who was hanged with him. I mean, why does that matter? Why is that significant? Why would the, why would the disciples and the apostles go and they're preaching that Jesus had been hung on a tree? Well, Deuteronomy 21 so that it's actually a curse to be hung on a tree. It said this, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So there were some that had committed a a, a transgression of the law that was worthy of the death penalty. And some would be sort of hung on a a tree as almost like the cross, like a deterrent to ungodliness. It was as if they were so wicked they didn't deserve to be buried right away. And that person, the law of Moses said, was under God's curse. He's a transgressor of the law. But then why would, why would a tree be associated with being under transgression? Why the tree? Why why does that matter? Well, I think I think it makes sense. I think we'll see it in Galatians 3. That the, the, the tree is the, the image of the curse because it's the tree that, that was the object at the impetus of Satan that led to the first transgression against the Lord that flooded this world and flooded creation with sin. It was Adam and Eve partaking of. forbidden forbidden fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And because of that, they became transgressors and sin and all of its consequences and spiritual death and alienation from God and and blindness and darkness. It it flooded into God's creation because they ate of this tree. So being hung from the tree was a visible representation that you are bearing the consequences for transgressing the law of God. And this is why I think the Apostle Paul does it. He sort of takes this idea from Deuteronomy and he applies it to Christ in Galatians 3. He says, This Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Out of all the ways that Jesus could have been killed, I think he was nailed to a tree in order to demonstrate that he became a curse. He took the curse of sin. He took the penalty of sin upon Himself. What should have fallen upon sinners fell upon Christ. And it brings us back to what we read in Romans chapter 5, that Jesus accomplished our redemption by being treated as an enemy for our sake. The pure and perfect Son of God put to death on a tree like the vilest of criminals on His left and His right so that we might be the recipients of His grace we've seen over and over we said six times they've confessed his innocence the centurion next week going to say it again he perfectly obeyed the law and he should have alone been the recipients of the blessings of keeping the law of god yet for our sake he bore the curse of condemnation he was hung on a tree and took the judgment that was owed to us he took the wrath of god upon himself as our substitute so that we might be treated as if we were perfectly righteous and now we, if we come to Him through simple faith, simple faith, not in everything turning out, simple faith in Him. Right? We've talked about the Puritans using that word recumbency, placing your full weight on something, throwing your full self at the death and resurrection of Jesus on your behalf. You receive all the spiritual blessings available in Christ. Notice then that this, this whole Thing began with the, the the repentant criminal acknowledging his own inability to have obeyed. Right? He's he's a, admitting this is the just penalty, the due reward. And I I was just going to say this is this is the first step in anyone coming to Christ. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. He runs to those who confess their sin and admit their need. For him, And this morning, even for believers, it's good for us to remember that it's because of our sin, it's because of our sin that Christ was hung on that tree. Augustine said the cross was a pulpit in which Christ preached His love to the world. The cross was a pulpit in which Christ preached His love to the world. And if that's true, I think the thief on the cross, the criminal on the cross, becomes like one of the main points of how God demonstrated his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What a glorious gospel we have. Right? What a glorious gospel we have. That's, that's the message that, that we need to be reminded of, even as believers. That's the message that our world needs to hear. That's the message that our neighbors and our co-workers and our our friends and family, That's the parents, that's what our children need from us, is to be reminded of the gospel of Christ. It's the message that's been entrusted to the church to protect and to preach and to proclaim, even when it's not popular, even when it's out of season. The gospel that this news can save a man on his deathbed, Right? But I feel like I should say this. Please don't bank on that. Right? Please don't bank on I'll live life my way, on my terms, and I'll settle up with God on my deathbed. You're, if that's your heart, you're likelier to be the guy who is reviling Jesus than you are the second. As far as we know, the criminal is encountering Jesus for the first time. Right? So if you want to follow the criminal's example, don't think you put off to your deathbed. Follow Christ the first time you hear about him. All right, let's end with this. A question we like to ask around here is this. Does it amaze you that God saved someone like you? Right? Does it amaze you that God saved someone like you? That's a good question for us to ask ourselves on occasion. Isaac, Isaac Watts wrote this. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cries with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? T'was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. That does it amaze you that God saved someone like you? That he opened your eyes to behold the glory of the gospel in Jesus Christ? I hope so. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for time to just reflect on you and your son, Jesus Christ, and the ministry of your spirit and allowing people to see truth. Would you do that even now? We've got um, people who come who don't know you. Would you save them from their sins? Would you allow them to see this glorious gospel? Lord, for those in Christ, would you, again, stir our affections because of this? Would you cause us to walk more faithfully in light of it? May we be compelled by the love of Christ. In his name we pray, amen.